Hello, hello, hello! I am holding a book and I am so excited to have it in my hands. It is The Marriage Portrait by Maggie O'Farrell. It just seems like five minutes ago since we launched Hamnet at the salon when we were at the Savoy. And that was the first and only event that Maggie did for that book because the pandemic happened. I'm hoping that The Marriage Portrait does not herald another pandemic. This is our very first book of the week. Yes, the feature formerly known as Salon Exclusive is now called Book of the Week because there's just so much good stuff to bring to you and we don't want you to miss out. So we're starting off with the absolutely cracking title that is The Marriage Portrait by Maggie O'Farrell. Our podcast is the very first podcast in the world to bring you an extract from the audiobook. So thank you very much for subscribing and joining and getting a front row seat for this big moment in literary history. Because that's what it is. A new bag book is a moment in history. And it's historical fiction. It's the story of Lucretia Borgia, who marries her husband, the Duke of Ferrara, in 1561 in Renaissance Italy or Renaissance Italy or Beyonce's Renaissance Italy, if you prefer. The novel is inspired by true events and, of course, by Robert Browning's very famous poem, My Last Duchess. And here's a chilling opening from that poem. That's my last duchess painted on the wall, looking as if she were alive. Dun, dun, dun. In lots of ways, this is a crime novel. Of course, it's historical fiction too. It is packed full of gorgeous historical details, but they're never distracting. Lucretia is a really complicated character, and I love Maggie for bringing her to life in that way. The tension starts right in the very first paragraph with Lucretia realising that she thinks her husband's going to kill her. Oh, here we go. Here's Maggie with more about her novel, followed by an exclusive extract from the audiobook. This is Maggie O'Farrell, author of The Marriage Portrait a novel about Lucrezia, a young duchess who realises while on a trip to a remote country villa that her husband is planning to kill her. Lucrezia has spent her life secluded and sequestered in the court of her father, the ruler of Tuscany, and now she must face the question, what do you do if you think your husband is about to murder you? How can a young 16-year-old girl ensure her survival and what chance can she possibly have against Alfonso, her husband, who is a trained soldier and a ruler of Ferrara? In the extract you're about to hear, Lucrezia is seven years old and she meets a tiger for the very first time. Her father, Cosimo, keeps a menagerie of exotic animals in the basement of his palazzo in Florence. And Lucrezia has been fascinated to learn that a tiger has arrived as an addition to this menagerie. And she has been desperate to see it. Her father takes her and her siblings down at night to the basement to see the first ever tiger in Tuscany. When I was writing it, I was imagining what it must have been like to have seen a tiger for the very first time while not having any idea what to expect. Renaissance art is full of lions, but not many tigers at all, so I suspect that a child in 16th century Florence had no idea what a tiger would look like, and I was, I was trying to write a description of a tiger from the point of view of somebody who had no preconception of what a tiger might look like. They are actually the first pages of the novel I ever wrote, and they remain, I think, my favourite part. The cage had iron bars running up, running down. 
The fire from the torch on the wall cast a triangular slice of light across the front of the cage, but left its back recesses in darkness. A slab of meat, marbled with white fat, was lying on the floor untouched. Other than that, there was no sign of the tigress at all. Lucrezia looked. She looked and looked into this blackness. She strained her eyes for a glimpse of orange, a glimmer of eye, the slightest movement or sign that the creature was present, but there was nothing. Papa, Isabella said after a while, is the tiger definitely in here? It is, their father said, craning his neck forward. Somewhere. There was another pause. Lucrezia pressed her hands to her chest. Please, she said inside her head to the creature she had seen on the cart, imprisoned by a rough wooden slatted box. Please show yourself. I am here. I won't be able to come again. Please come out. Is it sleeping? asked Giovanni doubtfully. Perhaps, said their father. Isabella danced up and down. Wake up, she called. Wake up. Come on, pussycat. Come on. Their father smiled down at her, putting a hand on her head. What a lazy pussycat this is, he said at last, not coming to make friends with you all. Babbo, Isabella said, taking his hand, may we go and see the lions again? They were my favourite. Yes, indeed, their father said delighted. An excellent idea. They are much more interesting than a sleepy tiger. Come, let's go. He ushered his children away from the tigress's cage, back down the corridor, the servant following behind with a torch. Not difficult at all, then, for Lucrezia to take a step or two, then fall behind the servant, then stop walking altogether, and allow the darkness to fold itself around her like a cloak. Then it was perfectly possible to retrace her steps back, back, back to the bars of the tigress's cage. She crouched down, resting on her heels. The only light now was from the brazier on the wall. She heard the others clattering away from her, towards the lions which were still baying and pacing. She could hear Isabella's high, questioning voice, asking about the lioness and if there might be baby soon, and could she, Isabella, have one, for she would dearly love a lion cub of her own. Giovanni and Maria were saying, Me too, oh, me too, can we, Papa, can we? Lucrezia looked at the slab of darkness. It seemed to pulse and hum. She scanned it from one end to the other. She tried to think herself towards the creature it contained, tried to picture what it would have been like to be captured in a far-off place, then brought by boat to Tuscany and left here in a stone cell. Please, she incanted again, far more fervently than she ever did in the pews of the chapel. Please... The fat-laced meat was giving off a ferrous, acrid scent. Why hadn't the tigress eaten it? Was she not hungry? Was she too sad? Was she scared of the lions? Lucrezia was gazing into the depthless black, searching for movement, for colour, anything. But her eyes were too weak, or she must have been looking the wrong way, because there was a flicker of movement next to the stone palazzo wall, and by the time she turned her head to see... The tigress was almost upon her. Liquid was her motion, like honey dropping from a spoon. She emerged from the shadow of her cage, as if she had the whole stretch of the jungle at her command, 
the filthy mud floor of Florence rolling under her paws. No pussycat she. She simmered, she crackled, she seethed with fire, her face astonishing in its livid symmetry. Lucrezia had never seen anything so beautiful in her life. The furnace bright back and sides, the pale underbelly, the marks on her fur, Lucrezia saw, were not stripes, no. The word was insufficient for them. They were a bold, dark lace to adorn, to conceal. They defined her. They saved her. Closer and closer she came, allowing the triangle of light to fall upon her. Her eyes were locked on Lucrezia. For a moment, it seemed as if she would pass her by, as the lioness had done, but the tigress paused, stopping in front of the girl. Her mind was not elsewhere like the lioness's. She had noticed her. She was there with Lucrezia. There was much the two of them needed to say to each other. Lucrezia knew this. The tigress knew this. Lucrezia eased herself forward, coming to her knees. The tigress's flank was there beside her, repeating incisions and ellipses of black in the amber. She could see the breath entering and leaving her body. She could see where the torso sloped away into her tender underside, the soft spread of her paws, the quivering in her limbs. She saw how the animal lifted her lustrous muzzle, nosing the air, sifting it for all it could tell her. Lucrezia could feel the sadness, the loneliness emanating from her, the shock at being torn from her home, the horror of the weeks and weeks at sea, she could feel the sting of the lashes the beast had received, the bitter longing for the vaporous and humid canopy of jungle, and the enticing green tunnels through its undergrowth that she alone commanded, the searing pain in her heart at the bars that now enclosed her. Was there no hope? The tigress seemed to be asking her. Will I always remain here? Will I never return home? Lucrezia felt tears welling in her eyes, to be so alone in such a place, it wasn't fair or right. She would ask her papa to send the animal back. They could take it onto the ship and sail to wherever they had found her, open the bars of her cage and watch her dive back into the lichenous, towering trees. Slowly, slowly Lucrezia put out her hand. She snaked her fingers through a gap in the iron bars and stretched, spreading her fingers reaching out of her shoulder socket, straining forward, her face pressed close to the cage. The tigress's fur was pliant, warm, soft as down. Lucrezia eased her fingertips along the animal's back, feeling the quiver of her muscles, the flexing beads of her spine. There was no difference between the orange fur and the black, no join as she thought there might be. The two colours overlapped and merged without trace. The tigress swung her vivid, complex face around, as if to examine the person behind such a caress, as if to ascertain its meaning. To look into her eyes was to behold the visage of an incandescent, forbidden deity. Lucrezia and the tigress regarded each other for a stretched moment, the child's hand on the beast's back, and time stopped for Lucrezia, the turning world stilled. Her life, her name her family and all that surrounded her receded and became void. She was aware only of her own heart and that of the tigress pulsing inside the ribs, drawing in scarlet blood and shooting it out again, flooding their veins. She barely breathed.
She didn't blink. Then a sudden cry, and Maria was shrieking, Papa, Papa, look! And the world and the palazzo came surging back. Maria was facing her, a startling white figure printed on the darkness, arm raised and admonishing finger pointing at Lucrezia. Feet were clattering, people were shouting, and Lucrezia was being seized from behind and dragged backwards, away from the tiger, cracking her wrist on the bars. She could hear her father calling orders. One of her siblings was screaming, and her own voice yelling, No, no, put me down! Lucrezia was then being hurried away, down the corridor, clutched in the arms of one of her father's soldiers. Maria was somewhere nearby, saying in her cold and instructive voice, What a stupid, stupid thing to do. She could have been killed. I told you she was too young to come. I wonder what will Mama say when she hears. Lucrezia's wrist throbbed with the blow. Her fingers felt naked and raw. They still held the sensation of warm fur of sleek stripes. She had no thought for her siblings or her father. She didn't know if they were with her or behind her or ahead, or if they were still standing by the lions. All she knew was that she was being borne away from something she loved more than anything else in the world, that the distance between them was increasing with every step taken. She was crying out, pleading to be let down, to be allowed back, but no one was heeding her. She kept her eyes on the cage for as long as she could. She looked and looked over the shoulder of the man who was carrying her, strained her eyes into the dark and saw, she was always sure of this afterwards, the tigress gazing at her for one final instant, then vanishing back into her dark lair with a whip-crack whirl of a striped tail. Now, I don't often describe prose as sensuous, but genuinely, this book has me hanging on every word and often just rereading sentences for the pure pleasure. Maggie is just an absolute mistress of her craft and to have her on the podcast is a pure privilege. So thank you, Maggie, for joining us and thank you uh, for listening. Now, The Marriage Portrait is published by Tinder Press. It's available now in all good bookshops. There's a stunning signed Waterstones exclusive edition for all you collectors out there and we're going to share a link to that in the description. Or you can buy the hardback from our shop on bookshop.org and that will support the salon. I just know everybody's going to fall in love with this book. It's going to be another bestseller. So if you know anybody who enjoyed Hamnet or who loves historical fiction, please do share our podcast with them so that they can be first to get in on the act as well. Thank you so much for listening and join us again soon. <laughs>